And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. This morning, of course, it is, uh, well, Tuesday as we kind of get this uh, day underway. And, you know, a few things to actually get into today. Uh, Rick and Morty did an episode, uh, the latest episode on Rick and Morty is talking about Mortiplicity, which was a takeoff of the um, Michael Keane show where multiplicity, where he was going back and and he had so many things to do, he started creating duplicates of himself to try to get all these tasks done all at one time. And, you know, that seems to be a lot of similarities to kind of what's going on in the markets currently, because, you know, as we continue to kind of look at what's happening and, and you know, trying to figure these things out in terms of you know, where we're going to and and the things that are happening inside of the market, you know, this is the environment where there seems to be just duplicates of everything going on. We've had these same conversations before, and yet every every time we get into these same conversations, it's almost the same argument over and over again that we have these things, right? And, And there's just like, we say this one thing and then this other thing happens and then there's a spin off of that and it's all very confusing. <laughs> and this is a bit of what we're getting into. For example, um, the employment to population ratios are still very low relative to where they were previously. Okay, so the argument is, is there's labor slack in the market. So the Federal Reserve, well, he can't raise interest rates to any great degree. This is the problem, right? They, they can't raise rates because there's still labor slack. So they're not going to be accommodative or they're not going to change their accommodative stance yet. You know, just when you think that that's the case, the reality is, is that you've got to ask the question, are we really do we really have that much labor slack in the markets if we go back and look at full-time employees relative to the working age population that's been declining after every single financial crisis we've had starting back with the dot-com crisis our full-time employees relative to the working age population was 50 almost 54 percent back in 1999 in 2007 it was 52 and a half percent at the peak of the market after, and then after the financial crisis, we peaked at 50.61% just before COVID set in and the, and the latest recession. So currently, we're running about 49% of the population full-time employment relative to the population. And the question is, is do we stop there? I mean, you know, there's expectations that this is all going to rally back to some new higher level that we've never seen before. But that's what we've thought after every previous market breakdown that we've had over the last 20 years. And yet we never get back to those original levels. Here's another example. Right now, the mainstream kind of analysis and economists expect that GDP will exceed the pre-pandemic later this year. That's probably correct because of the same thing that we're seeing with inflation. 
is called the base effect because we're working off such low levels of growth. And then you inject 20% of GDP in terms of stimulus into the economy. Then all of a sudden, we've got this big explosion of growth. But the, but the issue then becomes, is it sustainable? Right? Great. You're going to get back above GDP, the, the, the previous GDP trend. Now, keep this in mind for a second. We're going to get back to where we were previously, prior to the pandemic. But the question is, is are we going to start a whole new level of economic growth that we've never seen before? Or is it just a function of when the stimulus runs through the system, we start to return back to our standard rates of growth? And, and right now, if you look at expectations for GDP and expectations for federal spending, both of those are starting to decline after this quarter. This will be the peak of economic growth and peak of federal stimulus this quarter. But there's another fact behind this. Again, more duplicity, right? <laughs> Just when you think you're in the right universe, another universe, right, you know, comes along. Um, after, you know, when we were heading into 1999, we were running at roughly a 3.2% linear growth trend in the economy. After the financial crisis, that dropped to about a 2.2% trend growth. So, yes, well, we're going to get back to where we were previously. That's still lower than where we were in 1999. We've just had these step downs in economic prosperity over the last 20 years because of debts and deficits and everything else we're doing in the economy. But we're likely going to step down again after this and probably be somewhere at 2% or less on trend growth going forward. Even the Fed's long-term projections is 1.8%. Certainly not the level of economic growth that you would expect to need this kind of booming prosperity. But here becomes the problem for the Fed. Right now, expectations for growth this year is suggesting that we'll have a rapid decline in the unemployment rate. In fact, the unemployment rate is going to hit 2% by the end of this year. This is problematic for the Fed. The Fed saying, hey, you know, if we get back our two mandates or price stability and full employment. So here you are back at potentially 2% unemployment rate by the end of this year. That'd be the lowest on record, by the way. We were at 3.5% previous record just prior to the pandemic. And you've got roughly 4 to 5% inflation in terms of CPI on the books. So the Fed may be very well trapped in having to move up their policy prescription to start tightening monetary policy when the market absolutely believes right now that that's not the case. But there is a very high correlation between the Fed's balance sheet and the S&P 500. Psychological or physical interventions, doesn't matter what you think, there is a correlation there. And what we do know historically is that when the Fed starts to either contract or even just stabilize their balance sheet. In other words, they're not expanding or, or contracting it. They're just staying stable. The market tends to not respond well. Now, when they are either contracting or just stabilizing their balance sheet and hiking rates, which is now what is expected, the market pretends to, uh, tends to perform much more poorly at that point. You know, and this uh, this also goes back to the whole idea of wages, right? We have this explosive wage, you know, wage growth, et cetera, but wages aren't even keeping up with inflation. And this is the, the real problem. We look at the annual change in real wages 
they're not keeping up with the pace of inflation. And this is why, really, when we come back down and we talk about all of this, you know, in this multiverse that we live in, right, it's really just the few that are benefiting from any of this. If we take a look at household equity ownership by brackets, the top 10% of the economy are really the financial markets are owned by the top 10% of, of income earners. I've got a, if you're driving your car, you can catch the live stream later and see this chart, but you can't even see the, the bottom 50%. They don't even show up. They own one half of 1% of the financial markets. On a, on a, and when you relate it back to GDP, it even gets worse. And the biggest driver of all this, of course, for the top 10% that own the equities in the market, it's all been by the Fed balance sheet. So the problem for a lot of these individuals is going to be what happens next. We'll come back and talk a little bit more about that right after the break. Don't go away. He's down on his luck. It's tough. So tough. Listening to the Real Investment Show. You could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than seventy-six hundred dollars a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. July. 8th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. So this morning is technically speaking Tuesday, of course, as always. And we do have a latest report out up on the website now. And really, this kind of goes back to this whole idea of, of Rick and Morty and multiplicity and, and uh, you know, multiplicity at the same way is, is that, you know, we've it's almost these alternate universes that are universes that we think that we live in right now. Right. It's it's the real economy and what we see that's going on. Then there is the the expectations that we have because of financial media and the Fed and what's going on there. And then there's the reality that we know in the back of our head that you know a lot of this stuff just simply doesn't make a lot of sense about where we are, and that makes it very difficult, right? You know, trying to figure out which one is the the, the right universe to live in. This is this is the big challenge. And you try to navigate that the best way you can, and we try to do it logically and unemotionally and and deal with it that way. Just as an example, you know, yesterday, the we talked about yesterday morning that our money flow signals were very close to triggering a buy signal early, right? They're only about halfway through a correction process, and we're about to get a buy signal. And we talked about yesterday the fact that that's okay. That happens sometimes, and the markets kind of do something that you don't expect them to do. And that's okay. 
So, you know, we've been increasing exposure to portfolios over the last, you know, week or so, and kind of anticipating this early turn. And so that's fine. It just means that the next turn will come sooner than we than than we did last time because we've only got half as far to go, right? So it's just this this it's this universe that we live in at the moment. It's just what it is, and we have to deal with it for what it is. Today's technically speaking post is called "Warnings from Behind the Curtain," and I know it kind of sounds like a good Cold War fiction novel, right? <laughs> um, but these are these are indicators that we don't often hear about or see because a they're difficult to you know for a lot of people to understand and the media doesn't understand them so they can't explain them so they don't talk about them but there's little doubt that currently the markets are extremely extended very overbought and very bullish i mean just we have all the indicators in place exactly for that Right now, the market is at a historic deviation from its long-term moving averages. We haven't, you know, we've only seen this at a few periods in time, and generally, deviations like this only occur near market peaks. Now, it doesn't mean that you can have a market peak tomorrow. Now, this is the key, right? This happens when you have these environments existing. doesn't mean it happens today. It just means that you have all the right ingredients in place for a bigger correction in the markets. It's just a function of when. And, you know, this is because of the fact that we have a lot of, uh, again, just a, a tremendous amount of exuberance in the markets and, you know, and, and valuation. As I said, you know, so the market's overvalued. Right now, when you take a look at the inflation-adjusted market cap to GDP ratio, which is Warren Buffett's favorite indicator, right? It's at 2.36 times the market cap is 2.36 times the economy. Now, okay, no big deal. Well, in 1999, it was only 1.9 times that. Before the crash of 74, we were at 1.29 times GDP. Here's the point about this. The economy is where earnings come from. So you go out and you buy stuff, you sell stuff you know, in the economy. That's what makes the economy. Well, you buying stuff is what creates the revenue for these companies. So it should not be a far stretch of your imagination to understand that in this universe, at least for right now, the amount of revenue that is generated by a company, which translates to earnings eventually down the road, is driven by a function of what's happening in the real economy. So if you have a market capitalization ratio that is 2.3 times what the economy is, those two can't remain that case for a long time because historically over the last 130 years, there's a very high correlation between the rate of economic growth and guess what? Capital appreciation in the markets. What you'd expect. Now, they're not tied together. In other words, they don't go in lockstep, right? They can get out of lock from now and then. That's how you get these overvaluation problems. But, you know, nonetheless, eventually... Earnings and reality return back to 
what's happening is I was just talking about a second ago when we take a look at household equities. Here's a good example of this. You know, markets are very exuberant. So we're talking about the fact that the top 10% of income earners own 90% of the market. The bottom 50% own less than half of 1%. It's negligible. But right now, when you take a look at household equities as a proportion of disposable personal income, that ratio is now at the highest level on record. Now, why is that important? Is because well, I've only got so much money to invest, right? So I earn my wages, I have my, I have my savings, I invest my savings. Well, right now I'm I've got more ownership <laughs> than I have disposable income, and that's because we've gone into record levels of margin debt. People are taking out personal loans, credit card debt, etc., to invest in the markets, right? So. Right now, with household equities to DPI of 1.6%, it's, it's, you know, you're heavily getting heavily leveraged into the markets. So some of these kind of behind the scenes, you know, indicators, one is the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, uh, the SKU index, which is a measure of put buying within the uh, within the markets, it's it's a lot like a VIX index. This is currently at the highest level on record. Now, again, doesn't mean that you're going to have an immediate correction in the markets, but when the SKU index A spikes up and peaks, it typically corresponds with a short-term peak in the market. Now, it can be a short-term peak in the market. It can be a bigger correction. It can be a lot of things, right? It doesn't tell you what, and this is a problem we've said before, the thing about technical analysis, what it doesn't tell you, it doesn't tell you how big the correction is going to be. It just tells you there's one there's a potential for a correction in the making. Could be 1%, could be 3%, 5%, 10%, 20%, 30%, 50%. doesn't tell you that. It just tells you that you've got all the right ingredients for that. You know, horrible example of this is what's happening in Miami right now. The the property manager and the building manager reported structural problems two years ago on that condo. Nothing happens right away. So everybody says, ah, it's fine. We'll get to it later. Not going to worry about it right now. Don't have the money, whatever the issue is, right? Same thing for the markets. We see these indicators, and because they don't immediately translate into a correction in the markets, we say, oh, well, pff, they're wrong this time. It's different this time, whatever it is. Typically not. These are warning signs. These are things you should pay attention to, but because they don't always translate immediately into something, we ignore them until a more catastrophic event occurs. And then we all say, they go, well, should have paid attention to that. Same thing is, is same thing here is like investors right now are very concerned about the overvaluation in the markets. Not surprising. But they're also very confident that stock prices will be higher 12 months from now. In fact, they're so much more concerned that they might miss out on the markets 
that the ratio between their confidence of forward returns being higher and their concerns over high valuation has put that indicator at the highest level on record. And that is the very definition of irrational exuberance. The definition of irrational, uh, irrational exuberance, which was Dr. Robert Schiller's famed book, is specifically this idea that investors disregard valuations and fundamental measures of the markets in exchange for taking on risk to chase returns. Again, we don't pay attention to the warning signs because they didn't translate immediately into a problem. Cinema Trader had a really good chart out this past week showing the number of money losing companies that have been come that have come to par, come to the markets over the last year or so. There are only two other points in history where you've had money losing companies flooding the markets, both primary and secondary. The peak of the markets in 2000, the peak of the markets in 2008. And now. Again, doesn't mean that this is going to translate into a massive correction, but what it means is, is there's clearly a sense of speculation and greed in the markets. And this is the real, the real definition of all this, right? And markets go through these cycles, right? We have a big correction in the markets like 2008. We have panic. You've got discouragement. You know, people are just like, I'm never going to invest again. And then the markets start to, to come back, and it takes a couple of years, but they start to get confident again, and later on, they get more exuberant, and then they become enthusiastic. What are the definitions of enthusiasm in the markets? High optimism, easy credit, rush of offerings into the markets, risky stocks outperforming stretch valuations, all those we have in the markets right now. The very definition of enthusiasm in the markets is where we are right now. We'll be right back after the break. They all want me, they can't help me, so they all come and dance beside me. Move with me, chat with me, and if you're good, they'll take you home with me. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual Lunch and Learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual Lunch and Learn on long-term care. July 8th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show. So just talk a little bit about this um, kind of multiplicity that are in this case, multiplicity in reference to Rick and Morty's uh, episode. Um, 
you know, this this idea that you know we have these different universes that we're all kind of operating in in terms of the financial markets, and the the problem becomes trying to sort out which one is the real one, right? You know, in uh, in multiplicity, the creation of multiple families start creating the problem of trying to figure out which one is the right family, right? And this is the thing with the markets is trying to figure out what's the real market, right? We have what's going on with the Federal Reserve and we're chasing markets and we have to participate. Look, this is, and this is the problem. As I said, you know, there is the reality that markets are extremely overvalued. We've got all the signs of irrational exuberance in a market that you could ask for. But yet this time is different than it was before because of the Fed. So, so goes the argument. It's unlikely to be different. It just feels different because it hasn't blown up yet. And the question becomes, what triggers it? And the answer is, I don't know. Nobody knows. And nobody knows what's going to happen. And this is why we have to participate. So this really puts people really into two camps. And I get these emails on a regular basis. The first camp is that, well, I'm fully invested. I'm long and I'm, you know, a, you know holding really aggressive stocks because this market's never going to go down because the Fed is providing liquidity. So it's just going to go up. So I've got all my money in. What's wrong with that? That's camp one. Camp two is I'm just going to wait for the correction, then I'll invest. Here's the problem with both of those camps. They're the same, but different, different universes. The first problem is that by the time, well, let me put it this way. So let's go back to the person that's fully invested, long, and aggressively positioned. Nothing wrong with that in the markets right now. Okay. What bull markets do is cover up investing mistakes. You can buy money losing companies and get away with it because the bull market lifts all the prices. So there's nothing wrong with things like passive indexing and all these things because the markets are just pushing higher because of all this liquidity. Here's the problem with that thesis. Eventually, the market will turn for whatever reason. And look, it's pretty amazing. I got a long email yesterday explaining to me about the Fed and we're never going to have a correction, et cetera. And I was like, what, did you just forget about the 35% sell-off you had last March? Wasn't so fun. The problem is, is that when you start getting a correction, your first psychological behavioral response is going to be, okay, well, as soon as it rallies back, I'll sell something. And then it goes down more. Okay, well, as soon as it rallies back, I'm going to sell some and I'll reduce my risk. Then it goes down more. And by the time that you realize you're in a major correction, you've already lost a big chunk of your money. And you're now in the position of potentially selling out near the lows. Typical behavior of investors. The problem for the guy that's sitting on the sidelines going, well, as soon as we get a correction, I'll get in. The, the reality is you won't. You may have this great idea that you will. You'll be a bottom buyer. You have this great idea that this is going to be your, your strategy. Problem is you won't. Here's why. 
Because when the market starts to correct, you're going to go, well, okay, great. Here's the correction. I'm going to get all my cash together. I'm ready to go. I'm going to pick out my list of stocks I'm going to buy. And you'll be all set up. And then the market's going to go down some more. And you're going, okay, well, it's still going down. So I'm going to wait. Market's going to go down some more. Go, hey, it's still going down. So I'm going to wait. Finally, it bottoms. It starts to go back up. It's like, okay, maybe that was the bottom, but it doesn't really feel that way. I mean, it does, you know, st- I still think the market's going to go lower. Um, so I'm going to buy on the next dip, and then the market goes up some more. Okay, well, when the market pulls back some, I'm going to buy, and then the market goes up some more. And then by the time you actually get back in the position, it's like, oh, well, shoot, I missed it. I'm going to wait for the next correction. And this happens repeatedly throughout. I mean, literally, I get emails from people that have been out of the market since 2009 trying to figure out how to get back into it now. And that's totally real. So this is the problem with psychology and behavior and market dynamics and trying to make all this stuff to go there. You have the best intentions to do these things. It's just the reality is you probably won't. Because behaviorally, you're going to make the same mistakes. You're not going to manage your risk. And you're not going to buy when you think you should buy because emotionally it will feel terrible. But that's when you got to really, as my dad used to say, you got to nut up and do it. <laughs> you know, you just got, it's, you know, buying when, you know, as, as Baron the Rothschild once said, he says, you know, buy when there's blood in the streets. Absolutely. You got to buy, you've got to be the buyer when nobody else wants to buy. And it is a very difficult thing to do. You've also got to be a seller when nobody else wants to sell. Also a very tough thing to do. But look, having said all that, there is a clear bias to the upside right now in the markets because of liquidity and psychology and enthusiasm and excessive bullishness. How long will it last? Who knows? Could last a month, could last six months, a year, two years. Who knows? But that's the thing with managing money and managing markets. It's it's not easy. But you've got to start to really kind of separate out what's important to you as an investor. Forget, forget about television, right? Forget about the people on TikTok talking about how much money they're making, buying Dogecoin or whatever it is, right? Forget about all that. It's not important. It has nothing to do with you and your investment goals and what you're trying to get to. What you've got to determine is, is what's a reasonable rate of return for me to get me to where I want to be and how much risk am I willing to take to get there? Because risk, as we've talked about before on the show numerous times, is nothing more than how much money you're going to lose when you're wrong. And you're eventually going to be wrong, right? So when you're eventually wrong, how much money are you willing to lose? That's the control issue of your portfolio you have to work through. And you've got to be content if you set up a portfolio to generate 6 or 7 or 8% a year and the markets are up 12 one year, you've got to be content with 6, 7, or 8. Because in the down year where the market's down 20 and you're down 2 or 3, you're going to be feeling pretty good about yourself. Losses are a whole lot harder to make up than missed opportunity. And this is a hard thing for people to get their heads around is that when the markets are going up, it's like, oh, man. You know, I left money on the table. It's okay. It's okay to leave some money on the table. It's okay to sell a stock that is really overbought and then it keeps going up some more. It's okay. Nothing wrong with that. A good poker player knows when to walk away from the table. 
If you try to stay at a poker table for too long, you will lose all your money. The house always wins. So it may seem like in the short term that you gave up some upside in a particular company because you sold it too early. Okay. It'll eventually have a pullback. And guess what? You can buy it back. This is the craziest thing that I have ever seen in 30 years in the financial markets. And it happens all the time with people I talk to. There is this belief that if I sell a company, I can't buy it back. I don't know where that came from, <laughs> but people feel like, say, I bought a stock and it went down, so I sold it. And now I can't buy it back. Why? There's nothing stopping you from buying back. There's not some special club over here that just kicked you out of the, you know, loser stock portfolio club. No, you can turn right around and buy it back the next day. You've got to worry about tax law selling and stuff like that. But there's nothing that says you can't sell something and five minutes later buy it right back. There's nothing that stops you from doing that. Again, not talking about tax loss rules and those type of issues, just theory at the moment. I say that because I'm, I'm going to get emails from accountants going, yeah, but there's tax loss issues. Yes, okay. Nothing says you can't buy it back in 30 days. Okay. <laughs> so, But same thing when the market's going up, right? You sell a stock when it's going up and it has a little bit of a pullback and you still like the company and it's, it's you know, momentum's there, whatever it is, you can buy it back, right? Nothing's stopping you from doing that. What is important, though, is understanding that when you bought a stock right or bought a stock wrong, if you buy a stock and it goes down a lot, you bought it wrong. It doesn't mean that the company's bad. It just means that you bought it overpriced. You know, this is where technicals do help a bit by being able to look at a chart and saying, okay, you know, it's you know two standard deviations above you know its long-term mean or whatever it is and say look the stock's really extended you're going to get a pullback so you can be patient and wait to buy a stock people generally don't do that they watch headlines and they'll see some headline come across the television that abc company's on fire so they run in and buy it generally that's about the peak of the market by the time it shows up on the media it's about the peak <laughs> but it doesn't mean that you can't turn around and buy that same company back when it does correct. So it's just a function of controlling your risk, controlling your returns, and being happy with what you're generating. Always wanting more is what leads us to making all the series of psychological behavioral mistakes that wind up costing us a lot of money. We'll be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com. 
realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. July 8th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Welcome to this morning. All right, let's get to our, our uh, questions and comments that are going on on our live stream right now. If you go to our YouTube channel on our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, just click on the YouTube link. You can A, subscribe to our YouTube channel so you'll be notified whenever we do publish out a new video, um, three minutes on markets and money, et cetera. And we're going to restart up our podcast series uh, probably later on this year as we uh, get our studio rebuilt <laughs> after the great flood that we had <laughs> last year so um but uh so yeah a lot of things going on there on our youtube channel as well so again just click on the youtube channel but if you're on our live stream and you're in the chat room with everybody else you're more than happy to ask questions and we'll get around to answering those at the end of the show uh but there are some good ones today um one is uh asking what equity index will be most impacted by fed tapering at uh, all of them <laughs> and the reason is that there's a very high correlation between indexes right now, whether it's small cap, mid cap, large cap, technology, um, doesn't really matter. A lot of these have a very high correlation as, as money's been chasing markets now for a while. You know, when you start getting uh, a tapering in the markets, it will pretty much elicit a wave of selling across markets. And the problem now becomes all the leverage. And this is the bigger problem. You've got record margin debt. You've got people now taking out credit card debt, home equity lines of credit, et cetera, to all invest in the market. So when they start to lose capital in the markets, they will start to sell. And when they start to sell to try to protect their capital because they've got this outstanding debt, then that fuels more selling. And here's the problem with passive indexing and all these ETFs. All these ETFs own the underlying stocks. Then now, now there's ETFs of ETFs <laughs> that become more problematic. So when individuals start kind of dumping ETF positions and individual stocks, you get this additional sell-off pressure because the ETFs are having to liquidate the underlying holdings at the same time that individuals are selling their holdings. That just starts to feed upon itself. When you get to the point that you trigger margin debt calls, and this is the problem with record margin debt. Margin debt's fine on the way up. Margin debt provides extra buying power. That's how you get household equity to DPI ratios of 1.7 times. This is how you get a market cap to GDP of two times, right? It's all through leverage. So when that reverses, that amplifies the selling pressure on the way down as well. You know, what's, what, what caused the markets to rise more than it should on the way up also fuels the sell-off on the way down. So again, there really won't be uh, the best place to be in a Fed tapering environment is 10-year Treasury bonds. We were saying prior to the 2020 sell-off, when we were at 1.5%, 2%, this actually goes back to when we were at 3% on the 10-year Treasury back in 2018, we were saying then that in the next recession, we would we would head close to zero in the 10-year Treasury. During the recession in 2020, we got down to half a percent on the Treasury. When the Fed starts to taper, money's going to go 
directly into 10-year treasury bonds for safety, out of equities into bonds. So the place you don't want to be during the next sell-off when that occurs will be in equities. The place you'll want to be will be in treasuries. So great question, though. Um, what would you recommend for a percentage to trim near the top or a percentage setting stop on a retirement portfolio? Uh, stops are, there's two ways to do a stop. There is the Bill O'Neill way, who is the author of How to Make Money on Stocks and IBD and all that. His is as an 8% rule. The problem with an 8% hard stop, right? I'm just, I'm not going to lose any more than 8%. And, and there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with doing it that way. There's just a problem with it, which is that stocks move so quickly and get so deviated from, from previous support levels or previous moving averages that you could be correcting from a very elevated level back to the 50-day moving average, which would be a great entry point, but that decline may be 10 or 12%. So you get stopped out at eight. The position goes down to the moving averages, bounces off of it, goes right back up to previous highs or even sets new highs. And you're like, well, that didn't work. I'm not using stops anymore. So you quit. This happens all the time. The way that we do it, just as an example, is that we use previous support points where you know there was a lot of support built for the stock previously, or we use a uh, important moving average level that you know supports a rising trend in the stock. So we're looking for a break of that trend, and that's where our stop levels are. So there's not really kind of a hard and fast rule that you can just say for every position, you know, it's eight percent. You know, in my opinion whether it's an ETF or whether it's an index or whether it's an individual stock, you want to use either previous support levels, previous, you know, um, you know, moving average trends, those type of things. Find some level where there is a break in that momentum of the stock that suggests there's a potential turn. And then we apply one more layer to that, which is, is we may break that stop, but we give it a day or so once we even break it to make sure that it's a valid break. Sometimes you'll break it and go right back up the next day. You get stopped out. And then, of course, the psychology is, well, that stop didn't work. So I'm going to stop using stops. Generally, if you'll give, you, you break the stop, it's on your alert level. You're watching it. You break that stop. And if you don't, if you rally back up to the previous uh, support level that's now resistance and fail, you sell. If you get back above it, you're probably okay. So there, it's, it's not as easy as just, a hard and fast rule, in my opinion. It's a little bit of finesse to it, a little bit of science. But, you know, there's no excuse for not using stops in your portfolio. So, great question. Um, and when you talk about trimming near the top, you know, look, uh, you know, managing a portfolio is about allocating assets. And so if you buy a position that's 5% of your portfolio or 3% or whatever it is, and it grows to be 4 or 5% of your portfolio, just trim it back to what your original purchase price was. You know, you, you bought 3% of the portfolio originally, is now 5 you trim it back to 3 and let it grow again. Now you've got some cash to reinvest into something else to make you some money. Or if the market does correct, the reduction in the portfolio from an overbought condition limits that decline in your portfolio. And you have cash now to buy, you know, buy back the position or something else at a lower price. So just, you know, it's, it's about, we've talked about before, portfolio management's a game of inches. 
So it's just it's just tweaking. It's not making big moves. It's not being dramatic on all these type of things. Just small little changes to a portfolio over time can really reduce your risk, lower your volatility, and help you stay the course with your portfolio long term. You know, long term we want to be long term investors. Doesn't mean that we just have to sit on it and watch stuff ride up and down and then spend long periods of time getting back to even after we have a decline in our portfolio, right? So just doing some risk management can help you win the long-term hold game by managing the short-term volatility risk. Um, One more question here was, is how will stock prices be impacted if people decide to take stimulus checks and not go to work? Those are running out. So the question is really going to be in the next couple of months is how many people can find a job. And this is going to be one of the more interesting kind of situations coming up. We know we have record job openings right now. Everybody's like, oh, my gosh, we have these record job openings. We've had record job openings for years now. Since 2017, we've had record job openings. The record back then was lower than it is now, but we've had record job openings. And there's a problem with how we calculate job openings. It's not as clear cut as you think it is. It's a guess. And just because a company has a job opening doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to hire somebody. I'll hire the right person. Right now, as a good example, in our business, we have job openings. We have job openings all the time for the right people. So if somebody comes along that's the right person, we'll hire them. We'll make room for them if they're the right person. We're always hiring new advisors, right, because we're growing our business. So we have job openings. just doesn't mean that we're going to hire somebody today. That's the problem with job openings. Job openings don't translate necessarily to actually people out there hiring. Restaurants have job openings every day because they have super high turnover. Restaurant workers quit all the time. There's a restaurant, you go to any restaurant, they're always hiring somebody from a dishwasher to a busboy to, you know, what, or to a waiter, hostess, whatever, right? They're always hiring somebody because they always have people quitting. So just because you have high job openings doesn't necessarily mean you've got high employment. But my point is, is to your, to your issue is that, you know, when all these stimulus checks fade, then all this extra disposable income that people had to go out and buy stuff and create these and drive these earnings for companies are going to go away. Now, here's a a very important point about earnings. Earnings are expected to be up 14% in this next quarter's earnings reports. Sales will be down about 1%. How is that? Well, that's margin expansion. Companies have been able to increase their profit margins by reducing, you know, this, the, the, the economic shutdown was great for these companies, right? People working at home, reduce the cost of labor. I was able to use technology to increase my profit margins. The profit margins for businesses exploded last year, but eventually that's going to reverse. So we're about to see the peak of earnings growth right now. At a time where the Fed potentially is in a position of having to tighten monetary policy as employment gets back to full levels. This is going to be problematic as we head to 2022 in particular for both the markets, for earnings, and for the Fed. 
So those are the things you really be watching out most closely. Hey, thank you so much for uh, you know watching the show today. Always get by our website, get our latest blog post. It's out for Technical Speaking Tuesday. That's out right now on the website. Warnings from behind the curtain. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You're already here anyway. But if you're listening on the radio right now, get to our YouTube channel so you make sure and get our three minutes on markets and money. So much more on our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.